Hi everyone, this is Zach Hodges and welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Today I'm here with Brian Stansfield, a neonatologist here at MCG. Brian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. On today's episode, we will be discussing a case of hypoxia in a newborn. We have plenty to get to, so let's get started. Here is your clinical case. You are called to the labor and delivery room to evaluate a newborn in respiratory distress. Your patient is a term male born by precipitous vaginal delivery through meconium stained fluids on arrival to LND. His mother received only limited prenatal care. When you arrive, the baby is one minute old and the LND staff is providing positive pressure ventilation due to hypoxia and poor respiratory effort. Brian, how do you begin your evaluation of this newborn? Ideally, before the baby is born, we will know the estimated gestational age, findings on prenatal ultrasound, prenatal risk factors, including serologies and group B strep status, and finally, if the fluids were meconium stained or clear. Obviously, we do not always have all of this information, as in this case. But after the baby is born, we first need to evaluate three things. One, does the baby appear to be term? Two, is there good respiratory effort? And three, what is the tone? For our listeners, you are, of course, working through the Neonatal Resuscitation Protocol, or NRP. Focusing on the initial evaluation for our patient, this baby appears term, but is hypotonic and has irregular respirations. You auscultate the chest and hear that the heart rate is above 100 beats per minute. You also note coarse breath sounds bilaterally with appropriate chest rise while giving positive pressure ventilation. Brian, walk us through how you would continue this resuscitation. Well, I would start by placing a pulse ox on the right upper extremity, cardiac leads, and an orogastric tube to prevent insufflation of the stomach. In neonatal resuscitation, appropriate ventilation is the most important intervention that we can provide for neonates that fail the transition to extrauterine life. Having a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute and seeing appropriate chest rise are good clinical markers for appropriate ventilation. So our patient now has the pulse ox on the right hand, cardiac leads, and an orogastric tube placed. The baby is five minutes old and continuing to receive positive pressure ventilation. What is your target oxygen saturation at this time? Well, right after birth, we expect the pulse ox to read 60 to 65%, and this reflects the transition from the relatively hypoxic intrauterine environment. Normally, it takes up to 10 minutes for oxygen saturations to improve to 85 to 95%, but at five minutes of life, the baby's oxygen saturations should read about 80 to 85%. Tell our listeners more about this transition from fetal to neonatal circulation. So prior to birth, the placenta is the organ of gas exchange for the fetus. Oxygen-rich blood enters the umbilical vein from the placenta and is primarily shunted from the right atrium to the left atrium through the foramen ovale. This shunt provides oxygen-rich blood to circulate directly to the brain after passing through the left ventricle and aorta. Conversely, oxygen-poor blood returning from the head via the superior vena cava is directed through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle and subsequently to the pulmonary artery. Because oxygen is a potent vasodilator of the pulmonary vascular bed, the low oxygen content in the pulmonary arterioles and lack of oxygen in the fluid-filled lungs maintains these small arteries in the constricted state. The maintenance of vasoconstriction in the pulmonary bed increases vascular resistance in the pulmonary artery. In turn, oxygen-poor blood is shunted across the ductus arteriosus into the aorta to support oxygen and nutrient delivery to the lower half of the fetus. This concept is so important. I want to quickly highlight some of the key aspects of what you just said. One, prior to birth, there is very little pulmonary blood flow due to the low oxygen content and the high pulmonary vascular resistance. 
to the oxygen-rich blood that is received from the placenta by the umbilical vein is shunted through the foramen of valley to the left side of the heart, then pumped directly to the brain. And three, the pulmonary circulation receives relatively deoxygenated blood that maintains the high pulmonary vascular resistance in the fetal circulation. Brian, tell us now about the transition to neonatal circulation after delivery. So Zach, a lot of things happen at once. At delivery, the umbilical cord is clamped, thus removing the low-resistance placenta from the circulatory system. This separation increases systemic vascular resistance. At the same time, neonates take their first breaths, which cause the lungs to expand with room air. As oxygen enters the alveoli and moves into the pulmonary capillary network, the pulmonary vasculature will dilate, which reduces vascular resistance and promotes increased pulmonary blood flow. As the forward flow continues, oxygen-rich blood from the pulmonary veins returns to the left heart and then pumped out through the aorta. The increase in systemic vascular resistance decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance and improved oxygenation promotes the closure of the ductus arteriosus and the foramen ovale. This transition may take 48 hours to several days. Thanks for that detailed discussion. So for our listeners, some key things to remember are, one, as the neonate takes his or her first breaths, the lungs expand, dropping pulmonary vascular resistance and thus increasing pulmonary blood flow. Two, clamping of the umbilical cord increases systemic vascular resistance. And three, the combined decrease in pulmonary vascular pressure and the increase in systemic blood pressure stops the right-to-left shunting that is typical of the fetal circulation. And this also allows the foramen ovale and ductus arteriosus to close. It is because of this normal neonatal transition that we always place the pulse oximeter on the right upper extremity, as this placement reflects the oxygen content leaving the left ventricle prior to any potential mixing that may occur because of the patent ductus arteriosus. Hence the concept of preductal and postductal saturations. Coming back to our case, at five minutes of life, our patient's oxygen saturation was 70%, much lower than 80 to 85% that we would expect at this time. We continued providing positive pressure ventilation and increased the FiO2, but he subsequently required intubation due to worsening respiratory distress. Brian, at this point, what is your differential diagnosis for this patient? Well, Zach, at this point, there's a broad differential diagnosis. Remember, the meconium-stained fluids may be a sign of fetal distress at the time of delivery. Passage of meconium prior to delivery is associated with chorioamnionitis, maternal hypertension, post-term delivery, and maternal tobacco and drug abuse, especially cocaine. Causes of respiratory failure for the newborn include meconium aspiration, respiratory distress syndrome, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, pneumonia, pneumothorax, and anatomic defects of the respiratory tract. Congenital cardiac disease, especially transposition of the great arteries and those with pulmonary stenosis like tetralogy of flow, should also be considered. Other causes of hypoxia in a newborn include polycythemia or hyperviscosity syndrome, high magnesium levels if mom is being treated for preeclampsia, or opioid use. Because this mother had limited prenatal care, we have to consider all of the possible causes of hypoxia. So what is your next step in evaluating this patient? Well, first, this baby should receive a thorough physical exam. Note the level of cyanosis. Is it central or peripheral? Is the cyanosis persistent or intermittent? Acrocyanosis, that is cyanosis of the hands and feet, is a normal finding in newborns immediately after birth and may persist for 24 to 48 hours. Note the degree of respiratory effort. Is the baby breathing spontaneously above the set ventilatory rate? Are there retractions that could indicate a respiratory pathology? Listen carefully to the chest. Do you hear symmetric breath sounds? Any asymmetry could be due to a pneumothorax or malpositioning of the endotracheal tube. 
Is there a murmur or a single S2? This could indicate a cardiac pathology. Check the pulsatility of the brachial and femoral pulses and assess perfusion via capillary refill time. Finally, examine the abdomen. Is it full or scaphoid that would be consistent with congenital diaphragmatic hernia? Our patient's exam is notable for a non-syndromic term infant orally intubated on 80% FiO2. There is acrocyanosis, but the mucous membranes are pink. Crackles are present, but breath sounds are diminished on the right side. There is no murmur, pulses, capillary refill time, and the abdominal exam are all normal. How does this exam narrow your differential? Asymmetric breath sounds and increased oxygen requirement for the term infant exposed to meconium stained fluids are worrisome for meconium aspiration and a pneumothorax. Remember that in meconium aspiration syndrome, the inhaled meconium may function as a ball valve and lead to gas trapping in the distal airways. The alveoli expand during inhalation, but gas is unable to escape during expiration. This can lead to alveolar overdistension and rupture. So far in our case, we have a term infant with respiratory failure, possibly secondary to meconium aspiration, and now there is concern for a right-sided pneumothorax. When I'm worried about a patient having pneumothorax, I know we need a stat x-ray, but I suspect in this patient we may not have time to wait. How would you evaluate for a pneumothorax in this case? You are right, Zach. Chest x-ray is the gold standard for diagnosing pneumothorax in non-emergent cases. However, the neonates of bedside transillumination of the chest can be used to make the diagnosis if clinical suspicion is high, especially if there are vital sign instability. A pneumothorax appears as a translucent area in the chest cavity. If there is no pneumothorax, then the lung parenchyma will appear opaque. So you place a flashlight on the right side of the baby's chest and find that it appears translucent as compared to the left, and you clinically diagnose a pneumothorax. So what's your next step to decompress a pneumothorax in this baby? So needle decompression or thoracentesis can be performed with a 25-gauge butterfly needle with three-way stopcock and syringe. It is recommended to enter the anterior second intercostal space at the mid-clavicular line. I also place patients in a slightly head-up position to promote the accumulation of air in the upper poles of the thorax. The needle should be inserted perpendicular to the skin, immediately superior to the third rib, to avoid contacting the neurovascular bundle that runs inferior to each rib. You decompress the right chest and remove 20 mLs of air from the pleural space. The stat x-ray that you called for is finally obtained and shows a trace right-sided pneumothorax without mediastinal shift. You also note hyperinflated lungs with a flattened diaphragm and scattered patchy opacities. The cardiac silhouette and bowel gas pattern appear normal. How do you interpret these x-ray findings? This x-ray has many of the classic findings of meconium aspiration syndrome. The history supports this diagnosis as well. On chest x-ray, we see overinflation suggestive of air trapping, which we mentioned likely led to the pneumothorax. The patchy opacities likely represent inhaled meconium in the lungs. We are also reassured by the normal appearance of the heart and bowel gas pattern. Other than causing pneumothorax, what are other symptoms of meconium aspiration in newborns? First, meconium functions as a foreign body that impairs ventilation of the terminal bronchioles and alveoli. Second, meconium causes an inflammatory response and a so-called pneumonitis as the body responds to meconium in the distal airways and alveoli. Third, we are concerned that meconium inactivates surfactant and may lead to or contribute to surfactant deficiency, otherwise called respiratory distress syndrome of the newborn. Often, we have to provide considerable support to supply oxygen to the alveolus. The lack of oxygen can lead to acidosis and hypoxemia in the newborn, which may increase pulmonary vascular resistance and restrict the normal transition away from the fetal circulation. 
Higher airway pressures may be required to maintain oxygenation and deliver sufficient tidal volume for appropriate ventilation. In turn, we may be at risk for barrow, volume, or atelectrauma in worsening lung function. In summary, the pathophysiology of meconium aspiration includes 1. Obstruction, 2. Pneumonitis, and 3. Surfactant inactivation. I know that we have to be careful using high airway pressures in mechanically ventilated patients, but what do you mean by barrow, volume, and atelectrauma? So trauma to the lung can occur through a number of mechanisms with some controversy as to how much of a contribution each type of injury has on the developing lung. Barotrauma is the result of pressure placed on the lung through mechanical ventilation. It is closely tied to volutrauma, which has to do with the volume of air in the distal airways. Pressure and volume are closely related and graphically displayed on most mechanical ventilators. Atelectrauma has to do with the trauma caused by the opening and closing of alveoli and is often overlooked as an important cause of lung injury. Always remember that our ventilators can harm infants' lungs by multiple mechanisms. In addition to high pressures, high volumes, and repeated atelectrauma, excessive FiO2 leads to increased free radical production that may also contribute to lung injury. We can minimize harm by using appropriate PEEP, the minimal FiO2 required, conservative tidal volumes, and lastly, changing to other modes of ventilation when pressures are getting too high on the conventional ventilator. As we move forward in our case, what is your next step in the management of our patient with meconium aspiration syndrome? This patient may benefit from surfactant administration. Bolus surfactant may have two benefits for neonates with meconium aspiration syndrome. First, it replaces the surfactant that was previously inactivated by meconium. And second, the surfactant lavage may also help to loosen and remove meconium from the airway. When to administer a surfactant for MAS is somewhat personalized and varies between institutions. Surfactant is usually reserved for patients requiring mechanical ventilation with poor gas exchange and hypoxia. Several studies suggest that surfactant administration reduces the need for ECMO in MAS. We would also place umbilical vein and arterial catheters. Initial labs would include a CBC, blood glucose, arterial blood gas, and blood culture. Most practitioners initiate antimicrobial coverage with ampicillin and gentamicin when there is concern for possible early-onset sepsis or neonatal pneumonia, which cannot be easily distinguished from meconium aspiration. How can you be sure that there is not a cardiac cause of this baby's hypoxia? This is often difficult to do initially. At the bedside, we can perform a hyperoxia test to try to discriminate cardiac from respiratory causes of hypoxia. In primary respiratory illnesses with impaired gas exchange, increasing the amount of inspired oxygen should improve oxygenation. However, in congenital heart disease with fixed right-to-left shunts, increasing the oxygen in the alveoli will do little to overcome the shunting of deoxygenated blood from the right side of the heart to the systemic circulation. Thus, hypoxia from congenital heart disease will not dramatically improve with increased FiO2. Practically, we start by measuring the PaO2 at the baseline FiO2, then increase the FiO2 to 100% for 10 to 20 minutes, followed by repeated arterial sampling. If the PaO2 exceeds 150 millimeters of mercury on 100% FiO2, the cause of hypoxia is likely respiratory. If PaO2 remains less than 60 millimeters of mercury, cardiac causes are much more likely. So hypoxia due to respiratory causes should improve on 100% oxygen, but hypoxia due to cardiac disease may not. What if the PaO2 is in the indeterminate region between 60 and 150 on 100% FiO2? 
This is one of the main limitations of the hyperoxia test. Commonly, there are multiple contributing factors to hypoxia in a critically ill newborn. In our case of meconium aspiration, this infant has persistent hypoxia without a clear reason. He will require an echocardiogram to exclude cardiac disease and evaluate for evidence of persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. Remind us, what exactly is persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn? PPHN is persistence of fetal circulation after failure of the normal circulatory transition at birth. It is characterized by high pulmonary arterial pressure that leads to right-to-left shunting through the foramen ovale and ductus arteriosus. These patients are cyanotic and may or may not have signs of respiratory distress. They may also have differential cyanosis, where the postductal oxygen saturation in the left hand or legs is significantly lower than preductal saturations in the right hand, depending on the significance of the shunt across the ductus arteriosus. Clinically, it seems that PPHN can be easily confused for surfactant deficiency, sepsis, or heart disease. How do you make the diagnosis? I want to emphasize that PPHN is a clinical diagnosis. There is no single lab or imaging study that is completely diagnostic. Newborns with PPHN typically have a lay bioclinical course with episodes of worsening hypoxemia without significant changes in ventilatory settings or FiO2. This is due to subtle changes in pulmonary vascular resistance and variable right-to-left shunning. This contrasts with congenital heart disease, which usually has a more consistent clinical course. An echocardiogram is most commonly used to help diagnose PPHN and exclude congenital heart disease. What findings on echo suggest PPHN? We use an echo to evaluate for signs of elevated right ventricular pressure that occur in PPHN. Elevated right ventricular pressure will lead to three key findings. One, right-to-left flow through a patent foramen ovale and ductus arteriosus. Two, increased tricuspid regurgitation velocity. And three, flattening or leftward bowing of the interventricular septum. Bowing of the septum is particularly useful since the interventricular septum usually protrudes into the right ventricle during systole due to the much higher systemic pressure experienced by the left ventricle. During PPHN, the protrusion of the septum into the right ventricle is diminished or reversed due to the high pressure in the right ventricle. Also, in neonates, there is a physiologic amount of tricuspid regurgitation, which is flow from the right ventricle back to the right atrium during systole. In PPHN, elevated right ventricular pressure results in an increased amount of retrograde flow that we can measure with Doppler on an echocardiogram. So just to clarify, in PPHN, echo is used to estimate the right ventricular pressure. That is correct. Are there other causes of PPHN other than meconium aspiration? PPHN may result from any pathology that affects normal pulmonary development or causes postnatal pulmonary artery vasoconstriction. Abnormal pulmonary development may be due to pulmonary hypoplasia associated with oligohydramnios, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and congenital pulmonary airway malformations. Other causes of PPHN include pneumonia, sepsis, surfactant deficiency, and perinatal asphyxia. Intrauterine growth restriction, polycythemia, and SSRI exposure during pregnancy are risk factors for PPHN as well. Even in the presence of meconium-stained fluids, there can still be other causes of PPHN. As we move back to our case, the echo showed right-to-left shunting through a patent foramen ovale and PDA. There was also evidence of elevated right ventricular pressure due to increased trigustin regurgitation and flattening of the intraventricular septum. What is your next step in managing this infant with meconium aspiration that is worrisome for developing PPHN? 
PPHN is a complex disease, but the goals of treatment are simple and include increasing pulmonary blood flow, maintaining appropriate systemic blood pressure, and optimizing oxygen delivery. One of the first interventions is to increase the FiO2. Remember that oxygen is a strong pulmonary vasodilator. Giving oxygen will reduce pulmonary vascular resistance and should improve the flow of blood from the right ventricle into the pulmonary vasculature. We also want to manage our vascular pH by normalizing acid-base status. Normalizing pH helps to stabilize the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve. Remember, increasing pH shifts the curve to the left, making it easier for hemoglobin in the pulmonary capillary to pick up oxygen from the alveolus. Usually, neonates with MAS are prone to developing respiratory acidosis, evidenced by increased PCO2. Metabolic acidosis is also common, and this can be determined by a low bicarbonate concentration, elevated lactic acid levels, or base deficit on an arterial blood gas. Managing PPHN seems to be very similar to how we manage other diseases in the intensive care unit. One, we maintain appropriate oxygenation by increasing FiO2 and improving pulmonary blood flow. And two, we optimize oxygen delivery by supporting systemic blood pressure and correcting the likely combined respiratory and metabolic acidosis. What do you use to guide how well your therapy is working? At the bedside, we can use preductal and postductal pulse ox to help us understand oxygen content in the blood. Routine measures of PaO2 on arterial blood gas are useful as well. One thing to keep in mind is that blood gases obtained from a preductal site like the right radial artery will likely have a higher PaO2 than samples obtained from a postductal site like the umbilical artery catheter. How do you manage mechanical ventilation in these patients? Here, the goals are to maintain adequate minute ventilation to support a relatively normal pH of 7.25 to 7.4. Remember, minute ventilation is the tidal volume multiplied by the respiratory rate. We don't want to overdo ventilation in these patients since we may cause trauma to the lung or even pneumothorax. If we are using conventional ventilators, we target 4 to 6 mLs per kilo for tidal volume and a respiratory rate of 30 to 60 breaths per minute. We also set PEEP levels at 4 to 5 centimeters of water initially and try to limit exposure to high peak pressures over concerns of possible air trapping and pneumothorax. Chest x-rays can be really helpful as we try to achieve 8 to 9 ribs of lung expansion. Appropriate ventilation in these patients is so important. Low tidal volumes of 4 to 6 mLs per kilo and adequate PEEP starting at 4 to 5 allows for appropriate ventilation and oxygenation without excessive lung injury. How do you support systemic blood pressure in neonates with PPHN? We want to be very careful in these patients to avoid hypotension and acidosis as both will worsen right-to-left shunning and hypoxemia. We often use the gestational age as a rough estimate of the lower limit of the normal mean arterial pressure. Thus, if you have a neonate at 40 weeks PMA, then a MAP of 40 is usually the lower limit of normal. If there is concern for poor systemic perfusion, I will typically start by giving 10 to 20 mLs per kilo of isotonic crystalloid. Most commonly, I use 0.9% saline, but lactated ringers is also an option. If poor perfusion or hypotension persists after IV fluid resuscitation, then I start vasopressors. There is no definitive evidence that one presser is superior to all others. In our NICU, dopamine is commonly used first line, but epinephrine, norepinephrine, or vasopressin may also be considered. As vasoactive agents are initiated, the astute clinician can usually identify a blood pressure inflection point where oxygen saturations improve dramatically above a given mean arterial pressure. 
Basically, you want systemic blood pressure higher than the pulmonary pressure, which was estimated by the ECHO. By keeping systemic pressure higher than pulmonary pressure, the right-to-left shunt would be reduced or even reversed, and the infant should oxygenate better. I understand by supporting systemic blood pressure, you reduce the amount of right-to-left shunting and improve oxygenation. But what do you mean by a particular inflection point where oxygen saturations improve? Yes, let me clarify that a bit. For some patients, a clinician may be able to identify a particular mean arterial pressure that when the patient's MAP is above that number, their oxygen saturations go up, and when the patient's MAP is below that number, the oxygen saturations go down. What you are witnessing is the balancing act between systemic vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular resistance. It's always fascinating when we see our patient's physiology displayed for us right at the bedside. Yeah, that's one of the neat things about working in the NICU. As we continue with our case, our patient was given one 10 ml per kilo bolus of normal saline and continues with conventional ventilation with an FiO2 of 100%. Saturations in the right hand are 95% and the left leg is 85%. Perfusion is appropriate with normal capillary refill time and femoral pulses. Mean arterial pressure is adequate at 45 millimeters of mercury without vasopressors. Brian, what do you do if the baby continues to be hypoxic after all of these initial interventions? A newborn infant with PPHN that is refractory to initial therapy requires careful consideration. First, make sure that you have the correct diagnosis. As we said earlier, PPHN may be easily confused with sepsis, RDS, and congenital heart disease. Additional sedation and analgesia may be used to reduce the baby's response to stimuli, such as mechanical ventilation and lab draws. If we are having difficulties with elevated airway pressures, then you could consider a repeat x-ray to ensure that there is not a pneumothorax. High-frequency oscillatory ventilation may also be used if you are unable to ventilate the patient safely. How do you judge the severity of PPHN? One tool that we use to judge the severity of respiratory failure is the oxygenation index. I know that discussing formulas on podcasts can be problematic, but this one is pretty simple. The oxygenation index, or OI, is the FiO2 multiplied by the mean airway pressure divided by the PaO2. That means that if higher FiO2s are required, along with higher mean airway pressures, to maintain the same PaO2, the OI will increase, indicating worsening lung function. A normal OI is less than 5, and our most critically ill neonates may have OIs greater than 40. This formula is much simpler than the alveolar arterial gradient that we previously used to describe respiratory failure. Okay, so the oxygenation index is the fraction of inspired oxygen times the mean airway pressure divided by the PaO2. Normal is less than 5, and higher values indicate worsening cardiopulmonary function. Moving back to our case, what is your next step when patients with PPHN are continuing to require increased support? As in this case, inhaled nitric oxide is particularly useful for neonates with high pulmonary vascular resistance. INO is a short-lived pulmonary vasodilator that works by increasing cyclic GMP in pulmonary arterial smooth muscle cells. We typically start at 20 parts per million when a newborn's oxygenation index is greater than 20. There is typically little benefit from giving doses greater than 20 parts per million. You have to be careful using inhaled nitric oxide in babies with possible congenital heart disease because it is contraindicated if there is left heart dysfunction or any type of congenital heart disease that relies on the ductus arteriosus for systemic blood flow. Remember that when your patient improves, weaning inhaled nitric oxide should be done cautiously to prevent rebound pulmonary vasoconstriction. 
Are there any other medical therapies that you wanted to mention? It's important to remember that neuromuscular blockade may be used to decrease oxygen consumption and to ease mechanical ventilation. Also, if there is ventricular dysfunction without hypotension, then milrinone may be useful. What is the role for ECMO in refractory PPHN? ECMO is used for refractory PPHN if the cause is thought to be reversible. ECMO is considered for patients who are persistently hypoxic despite optimal medical therapy. In isolated PPHN, left heart function is usually preserved and veno-venous or VV ECMO is sufficient to support oxygenation and carbon dioxide removal. Veno-arterial or VA ECMO is reserved for combined cardiorespiratory failure. I want to stress again that ECMO is not definitive therapy for PPHN. It is a bridge to support the patient while the cause of PPHN resolves. In our patient, that would be the pneumonitis from meconium aspiration syndrome. Knowing when to initiate ECMO is not always clear, and criteria for initiating ECMO may vary between institutions. But an oxygenation index above 30 for 6 hours or greater than 40 for 2 hours has been used to indicate a need for ECMO. Thanks for that good overview on the use of ECMO and PPHN. We will be sure to include all the details in our show notes. As we're getting short on time, I will finish our case. Our term infant with meconium aspiration and PPHN required high-frequency ventilation and inhaled nitric oxide as his respiratory failure worsened on day of life two. He was able to be weaned back to conventional ventilation and off-nitric oxide by day of life five. He was later discharged home after an otherwise uncomplicated NICU stay on day of life 14. This case is consistent with what we see in isolated MAS-induced PPHN. Typically, these neonates are sick soon after delivery and may deteriorate at approximately 6 to 8 hours of life. Symptoms typically peak at around 48 hours of life secondary to the worsening pneumonitis. And if there is no complication, respiratory support is typically able to be weaned by 5 to 7 days. It is important for pediatricians at community hospitals to recognize that MAS and PPHN can develop in a baby even after a previously healthy pregnancy. Early consultation with your referral center may help coordinate appropriate care as these neonates can worsen very quickly. Brian, thanks for joining me today for this discussion. I know that our listeners will find these things helpful. Hopefully we can have you back soon for another NICU topic. Thanks, Zach. I've greatly enjoyed my time here. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. You can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also, visit our website at augusta.edu slash mcg slash pediatrics slash residency for show notes and more information about our program. Remember, this podcast is strictly intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you again on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.